You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. You are listening to the Catholic Psyche. This is Chris. And Deacon Basil. And so today we are, uh, just the two of us guys, are going to be talking about authentic Catholic masculinity. You know, just how to live out your life as a Catholic man, as opposed to a Catholic woman, for instance. You know, just... Like the masculine genius. Kind of that... Masculine genius concept. It was really developed by, you know, uh, Christopher West and... Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do this any longer, Chris. <laughs> no, we're not talking about that, Chris. <laughs> what we're going to be talking about is, um, I think, one of those great uh, Eastern uh, theologians... That was developed by, uh, you know, that that was, uh, I'm sorry, we're we're still laughing about that. We're talking about Gregory of Palamas. We were were asked to talk about masculinity and we just couldn't bite the bullet on that one. Yeah, yeah. It's um, not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and, but I think, I think there's some value in, in saying that um, if you want authentic anything, Mm. look at the gospels and look at Christ. So. There we, there, there we go. All right. Now, over. Yes. Gregory Palamas. Yes. Saint Gregory Palamas. Now, I think most people um, in the West have no idea anything about Gregory. Actually, um, can I ask you something? So, how does this work with him being a saint? He was canonized after the schism. With yeah. So, the so churches. he was. Yeah. And and there's, I think, a little bit of debate about that because certain Western theologians actually say that um, he's he's a quietist, which is a you know we talked a little bit about that actually yeah. in the mindfulness um, episode, but. Um, I think there's been kind of a, a... But he's venerated by Byzantine Catholics. Right, yeah. I mean, actually, I, yes. Um, I mean, we have him uh, a feast day of St. Gregory, and then every second uh, Sunday of uh, the Great Fast um, is, his, is his Sunday. It's dedicated to him um, there as well. And I think the reason for it um, is that there, there is this union between the East and the West does right. not mean that everybody sees everything 100% the exact same way. Now, we all have a universal faith, mm-hmm. and there is a universal um, way of viewing things, but I do think that it's important to say that there is also some disagreement on some of the finer points right. of theology. Right. Maybe not even disagreement, but at least there is emphasis yeah. on certain things in the East that are not as present in the West, and there's emphasis on certain things in the West that are not as present in the East. Yeah. A perfect example of this would be this, the, the, uh, this next week, the Immaculate Conception. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, yeah. That is actually a minor feast, yeah. um, a relatively minor, within the, uh, within the East. And oh, it is, they... like, the holy day Thomas of Aquinas holy days. Thomas Aquinas was not a big fan of it either. So. No, he wasn't a big fan of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, I mean, yeah, that's but like the holy day of holy days in the East. Plus it's Actually, yeah. in, the, in the West, in the in West. The West. And I think that's, that's very important. Very yeah. important. Um, but, I mean, I was just wondering more from the perspective of, like, having a feast day and all that so so it's it's universally understood among byzantine catholics that he is in fact a saint yes okay yes and and venerated okay. twice okay i i want to emphasize that yeah. twice um during the calendar year extra venerated. um and and so how does that work i mean that that's a great question um the eastern church did not stop yeah. um in 1054 no um and and um we have a number of saints that were canonized, we would say glorified, but were, you know, canonized after um, the schism when the Eastern churches were Orthodox. Right. Um, 
when we were brought back or when we came back to the to the union of the of the uh, with Rome mm-hmm. uh, we maintained a lot of those saints oh that's really cool um, I've, I've often said that one of the things I, I really look forward to when one day God willing all of the eastern and western churches unify is just how many more saints I'm gonna have at my disposal to to pray for me right because yeah. it's like well I mean in Russian practice I mean, yeah. the unification came just very, very recently. And yeah. so, it, you know, there's a lot of them. St. Seraphim Masarov, who, who yeah. plays out a kind of important aspect here. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing is to say that, you know, saints mean they're in heaven. That's right. We talked about you know, that on our grief and loss episode. Right, right. So I think I think sometimes we get a little, bar, like, a little uh, bogged down in Roman bureaucracy yeah. <laughs> um, where it's being like well this person we gotta they wait only had until two that... and a half miracles right, right exactly three. right <laughs> exactly and I think that I think that can be kind of problematic so I think yeah. you know um, and, and, and coincidentally that also plays into an eastern understanding of, of the afterlife as well it's yeah like, I like I think that there's some really important things I'm so, just, either way I'm just glad his, his chief opponent Barlaam is not a saint Barlaam yeah, yeah just a total uh, piece of crap that guy <laughs> Well, I suppose. No, no, um, no, no, no. But um, I think that's important. So we've got a couple of names in there. We've got St. Gregory Polymnus, yeah. um, or of Polymnus, um, and he developed his, you know, kind of treatise. And we have actually mentioned his name before on the podcast, but his development of what the uh, what the uh, church calls hesychasm. Mm-hmm. Again, you can kind of go back to the... Uh, to the um, episode on mindfulness and also the one on Evagrius to hear a little bit about hesychasm and we'll talk about it more now but the idea being um, the experience of God mm-hmm. and um, so St. Gregory was uh, basically mid uh, mid 1300 okay well, 1300s 14th century right correct and I think you know what's interesting about this is just after Thomas Aquinas is uh, in the West yeah right, right. Um, and so this is kind of a really interesting kind of process. almost the Aquinas of the West in some oh, ways. I think I mean, we would really, call him the Aquinas yeah. of the West in, or, uh, in many ways. Of the East. Of the East. Well, too many directions. I know. Um, but yeah, you're right. You're right. So the Aquinas of the of the East. Now he's relatively late. I mean, the empire yeah. fell in the in the right. uh, 1400s. So, um, and it was you know still an important movement back then, but it was definitely in decline. And so sure. I think it is. There are historic reasons why that plays out. Mm-hmm. Now the other person that you mentioned was Barlaam, mm-hmm. which is probably the funnest name in the entire world. If he wasn't a ridiculously uh, her- a, a ridiculous heretic, I would name my son Barlaam um, <laughs> just for fun. Yeah. Um, but Barlaam was a uh, kind of the classic uh, description of of him, and uh, and one that I know that you have a problem with. And actually, uh, in our conversations. Mm, um, yeah. This has kind of developed um, over time, but we he, text about this like off mic. We just talk about Barlaam, right? Pretty cool, right? <laughs> but um, what Barlaam was pointing at was he was from the the su- southern Italy, um, an area which is still Byzantine to this day, um, and he was Orthodox. You know, he was in schism, but he was trained in some scholastic thought on different things. And now, what I think your point has always been to me. Um, pounding the the kind of drum of of Thomism has been that he was poorly educated, if at all educated in sort of the authentic teachings of the scholastics. Is that- yeah. Well, so I need to, uh, man, I did not prepare enough. So I so from what I recall with Barlaam, is that he, in some ways, sounds not very Thomistic. Yes. And so that that does harm to the standard the standard narrative, which is that Barlaam is sort of like a, 
a covert Westerner in the East arguing against the archetypal Eastern mystic Gregory of Palamas. And that there's political reasons, even to this day, yeah. why that narrative is push, pushed the way in which it is. Because now you've got the West and the East, the kind of battle between that West and the East. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I so here's, I mean, so for example, so I picked up recently... Uh, um, Paulist Press has a series called The Classics of Western Spirituality. Yes. It's phenomenal. It's a great series. I'm just wondering uh, why Gregory Palamas is considered a classic of Western sp- <laughs> Neither here nor there. So, you know, they, they have everyone from, you know, Julian of Norwich to, you know, Origen to, you know, Hildegard of Bingen. And these, these mystics that, you know, mostly Christian mystics, but I think they also do some mystics in other, other traditions. Um, and... And the one on Gregory Palamas has a nice introduction. I think it's Father Meyendorf. Yeah, Father yep. Meyendorf. Yep. Who, who's a, a modern Orthodox theologian. Orthodox theologian. Well, very, 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 very uh, well renowned. And and so this caught my eye in my Father Meyendorf's introduction to the text. He writes um, regarding the Byzantine um, relationship with Greek philosophy. Okay. Uh, One of the most striking characteristics of Byzantine medieval Christianity is its concern with the role of ancient Greek philosophy. In fact, unlike their Latin contemporaries who discovered Greek philosophy in Latin translations from the Arabic in the 12th century, the Byzantines had never forgotten Plato or Aristotle, who represented their own Greek cultural past and were always accessible to them in the original Greek text. So here we have these, you know, Eastern Christian theologians, probably in some ways more versed in Greek philosophy than many Western theologians who paid tremendous honor to the Greeks. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is something we actually were texting back and forth earlier about, like, there was always academies of Aristotelian and even Platonic philosophy in Constantinople. That's All right. the way from the beginning, there was always an active, um, really until the, until the, the, the um, conquest, it was always present within Constantinople. That's right. Now, uh, Palamas is responding to a, a couple of things, and one of them is, you know, the accusation uh, or the uh, thesis of Barlaam that that um, natural philosophy is somehow necessary for for the experience of God, which is something Palamas argues against. Right. Right. So that's so that basically Barlaam is is pointing to the fact or to to the to the. He's, he's giving this pre- presentation that there is this necessary uh, experience of God within nature. That's right. And Palamas is actually arguing contrary to that. That's right. But Palamas is also responding to these like neo, Neoplatonist thinkers of his time who believed that in order to experience God, the mind needs to sort of escape from the prison of the body and elevate itself. Only then can the mind be pure enough to experience God. And Palamas is arguing that as in embodied beings um, who follow the example of our incarnate Lord, we need to bring the body into prayer. And that, that tack, to me, sounds very Thomistic. Yeah, yeah. Anti, well, anti-Gnostic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but the point that Barla'am is trying to emphasize, I think, I think the story behind it is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Because what Barla'am was, he's, he went to Constantinople and he started to see these monks in their cells yeah. doing this very funny breath prayer. Oh, sure. You know, and, and those were the quietest he saw? Or just... Well, he, he saw Eastern monks okay. doing okay. the Jesus prayer 
um, within a specific, within the Gregory of Sinai method, which is, you know, with a very specific way, I mean, Gregory of Sinai, there's too many Gregories out there, but of Sinai says, um, you do it crouched down in a very specific way with your head down on your chest and you're breathing in and breathing out in a certain, you know, very mindfulness way. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is that he, Barlaam could not comprehend that as being anything good. Mm, and that's what he was reacting okay. um, against when he was saying like that these are quietists, that these are people who are trying to separate themselves in some kind of Gnostic mm. way. Um, and I think that's where he's primarily, why Barlaam was pushing so aggressively hmm. the natural, um, natural philosophy and natural sciences. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't heard that. I don't really know any of the biographical details yeah. of these guys, but I mean, I'm fascinated by their ideas. Um, there's also some other stuff I, I got out of this great book called Orthodox Readings of Aquinas by Marcus Plested. And it, it, it's one of the books I, it's like the, one of the first books I showed Deacon Basil. It was like my olive branch to Deacon Basil when I was getting to know him. I was like, <laughs> see, I'm a, I'm a peaceful kind of Thomist. I mean no harm. So in this book, Marcus Plested breaks down a lot of these traditional narratives that like, you know, East mystical, West rational, you know, East um, has a caustic West uh, scientific. And he writes this about the Palamis Barlaam debate. Quote, in fact, it is Gregory's opponents who exhibit the anti-logical theological mentality all too commonly associated with him and his supporters. Barlaam, although no mean student of logic himself, was deeply skeptical about the possibility of any rational argumentation in relation to the divine and scornful of the Latin dependence on syllogisms. So, though he was, and in the footnote from following that sentence, Plested writes, Barlaam is probably the stricter Aristotelian here, in that Aristotle had denied the possibility of apodictic demonstration of first principles. <laughs> Long story short, the standard narrative is, is wrong in an interesting way because Palamas was a better Aristotelian than Barlaam. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think that's really important, is to say that Eastern theology did build off of Western, or excuse me, Eastern theology did build off of Eastern Greek um, philosophy. Yeah, sure. And I think to, to not say that is um, juvenile. The spiritual life, in many ways, had its foundation within, um, within Plato's uh, symposium. Yeah. And the development of the, de you know, the development, the way in which we understand these things. So I think, it's I think, Aeneas, I mean, there's so many, yeah, I mean, Plato initially, and then later, Aristotle. yeah, I mean, yeah. these were, you know, the, 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 um, what is that Eastern, con you know, um, despoiling the earth of all that is good, right? Mm. The, the Eastern Christians saw all of the tools of, of pagan philosophy as amenable to baptism. Yeah, which absolutely. is useful. And, you know, later Jesuits did the same thing, for instance, with um, Far Eastern thinkers like Confucius. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is something which is wholly not discussed in, yeah. the or, in Orthodox circles. Mm. Um, yeah, they want there to is this, There yeah. is this mentality within Orthodox circles of saying, all we really need is the patristics. Now, quite frankly, the patristics, you can get a heck of a long way yeah. with just the patristics. Well, even the patristics drew from... Because, and I was going to—I was just going to say that because they were drawing from the Greek philosophy yeah. beforehand. That's right. So I think I think the problem is is that theology is not just simply a quick read. 
No, it's really not. It's really not. Neither you, is history. Neither is history, and and it and and you have to kind of get into it in very very detailed ways, and and it takes a lifetime. I'm, I've been doing this at least actively for at least a decade. But here's the good news, and I'm still yeah. barely scratching oh, the surface. Yeah. But same yeah. with, and same with I don't even read theology. You know, I barely read the theology, but it's even philosophy takes a lifetime. Uh, the good news, as per Gregory Palamas, is that. Um, one doesn't actually need to be a lifelong academic student of theology to be close to God. Yes. And Thomas Aquinas actually agreed. And Thomas Aquinas actually agreed, who at the end of his life had a mystical revelation and called all of his writings straw. Now, I think it's some of the best straw out there. Right. But compared to the direct experience of God, it falls gravely short. Right. Absolutely. So I think that's a really important point. And I think this was the one kind of thrust that we really wanted to kind of talk about um, today, aside from all of the kind of historic stuff, it was this question and this concept of, is philosophy necessary for salvation? That's right. That's right. And there seems to be this movement mm -hmm. within modern, um, modern Catholic thought that has really kind of gone back to the philosophy, which I think is a good thing in some, in way, some yeah. ways, but has made it an entire intellectualized game where yeah. theology and the experience of God is an intellectualism. Yeah, I, 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 think, um, I think people can turn any lesser good into an idol. And the higher that lesser good is, the harder it is to see that it is in fact an idol. So it's very clear when we see people addicted to um, sort of the, you know, the more base pleasures to see how they're making those things into idols. But knowledge, not, all of us would agree, knowledge is a very high good. Yeah. And so Christians rightly, oftentimes Christians rightly pursue knowledge. I mean, it's almost like a platitude to say that like Catholicism historically has been associated with like an intellectual revival anywhere that it landed, you know, in Europe and elsewhere in the world. And so knowledge is good, people wanna learn. And yet knowledge can very easily become an idol and take the place of God who is beyond as Palma says, both knowing and unknowing. Right, right. And so the temptation there is to simply say that I can know God because I know a lot of facts about yeah. how we can understand God. Yeah. And the reality is, is that um, the best philosophy is done with God in mind. Mm -hmm. What does Pope Francis say? Theologians should do theology on their knees? On their knees, yeah. yeah. I, I've heard that a number of ways, actually. I've yeah. heard that, um, you know, a number of times from different church officials. Yeah. And I think that's really important. So, to say that you can't just simply jump the gun yeah. um, and say that it's there. Now, I'm curious, why, from your reading, because I, I of course, have my own, but <laughs> yeah. why, why is it not necessary to know some things about God. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, I know some things about my wife. Yep. Um, and I have a relationship because I know those things about That's my right. wife. Therefore, do I need that in order to understand God? Yeah. Actually, as a quick side note, um, one of the most challenging issues in philosophy is to deal with how we even know singular things at all. Yeah. Because we know things in their universality. Um, that aside, um, you know, it's interesting, both Pal Palamas and, and the Western theologians frame this a little bit differently, but ultimately they both end up saying something very similar, which is that most of the things we know about God aren't things proper, but we sort of engage in like a negative theology. Yeah. We, we can say definitively what he is not. Right. So this is called apophatic Apophatic, theology. yep. yep or, um, and, 
Um, and you know, for instance, uh, from from the first way um, that Thomas Aquinas gives in the Summa, which derives principally from Aristotle's argument from motion and physics, uh, his book The Physics, chapter eight, uh, book eight, excuse me. He, um, you know, he we learn that God doesn't move, God doesn't change, right? Yeah. Or he, God lacks, you know, certain uh, imperfections that other created beings have. But to know what God is, since it's outside of knowing, requires a different avenue, right? Because if you, you can't access that directly through intellectual knowledge, because God, God being beyond, be, beyond our world of created things is beyond that sort of knowing through which we come to knowledge of, say, trees or rocks, we must experience him, uh, we must experience him in order to gain that sort of knowledge about him, right? So yeah. this comes through, I think, principally through prayer and contemplation. Yes. Yeah. And that, what do you think? <laughs> that would be, uh, you know, the way in which Polymus has kind of described that to kind of mm -hmm. go off of that a little bit more is that he differentiates the, the, uh, between the essence and the energies of God. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so essentially the classic example, I think Polymus actually uses this, mm -hmm. this image, it's the idea of the sun. Mm. Now, Back in the day, it was a little better before space flight. But the idea being is that you that God is the sun in uh -huh. his essence. Yeah. And you, can, you can't approach God in his essence. Mm -hmm. I, my rector in seminary, who was a Westerner rector, mm. by the by, um, said that anything you can say about God, God is um, less like that than he is like that. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know? or in, in Thomistic thought, we, we call this... Um, analogical predication. Yes. We, we can only speak about God analogically. So I have an experience of friendship, right, from, from Deacon Basil and other people. I can extend that to God only analogically because God is beyond the kind of friendship that I experienced here. Yes, that's exactly it. So you can only, you can, you can't approach God in his essence. He is like the sun out in space, right? But you can experience his energies, which is the sunlight, mm. right? So you can experience aspects of him. The effects. The effects of him. But you can't experience him in his essence. That's such an uncontroversial distinction. I don't know why, like, Westerners make such a poo-poo on the essence energies thing. Well, where it comes out is, is the question of, okay, what does simplicity. the afterlife look like? Oh, okay. Or I was going to say, does it, does it affect divine simplicity? I don't know if it has. Well, I think that probably does it too, but I think... Particularly for me, the question and, and where and where most Westerners really get their their get freaked out and the yeah, hair on the yeah. back of their head goes up is like okay because we would say that in you know salvation is not static mm. that's why we literally pray for the Theotokos that she'll have a, a Mary that she'll have a deeper experience of God man I really like that right I've often been put off by the static no Western notion of salvation of like the beatific vision is sort of like this it's just the way it is from the first moment is the way it's always going to be right yeah right and we would even say that it's not even just a vision of God mm -hmm. because that's just, you know, it's, it's the divinization of the person. Yeah. It's not just a beatific yeah, vision. Yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. a divinization. Sure. But anyways, I'm sorry. Where we can go way all this? over the place yeah. here. But Oh, the, how we understand that uh, the difference between knowing facts about God and knowing God. Right. And I think what's important about this is that we can know certain things about how he's operated in our lives. Sure. And but we can't know the essence of it. And I think that's no. back to Thomas Aquinas' Absolutely. exact story about it. He had an experience of yeah. God, and he decided that everything he was writing after that point was meaningless. Not, yeah. not even meaningless, but, but that it was not, 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 not the highest. Not able to fully grasp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and th I mean, this comes out too. I mean, I, as far as I know, most of you know, the church's Western theologians would agree that, that the, 
the, the times when, for instance, in the Old Testament, when, you know, the patriarchs and the prophets um, see God or interact with God, they're interacting with like an angel of God, right? Because God in his essence, like no, like we're, in the scriptures, we're told no man has seen God and lived, right? So right. It's, it's that, it's that he's, you know, so beyond this world that like we can't have that direct contact. So when he comes down to interact with us, it can only be mediated. Now, that reaches a summit point in the incarnation where God himself mediates that relationship through his own material body. And there's so many directions to go that way. I mean, what, what, you know, what is that experience then, you know? And, right. And, and, and I think there's really an important aspect to it. Um, but I mean, practically, what are the takeaways we're doing? We're doing good. We're at 24. So we have oh, like five, let's do like five to seven more minutes. Yeah. What are the practical takeaways for Christians who hear this about Palamas? I mean, how can, how does it affect one's spiritual life and how does it affect one psychologically? No, this is an excellent question. And I think the big, the big takeaway for me is that sometimes it's not so important to be reading every little thing, even about, mm -hmm. even about Gregory. Mm -hmm. You don't have to read mm -hmm. details about Gregory or about his triads. You don't have to do that. <laughs> yeah. They can be helpful. Yeah. You don't have to read the Summa. Mm -hmm. It can be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but you need to experience God. Mm. And this is where, like, in Eastern practice, and the West has this too. I'm not trying to mitigate this. No, but, no. but in Eastern practice, theology is taught through liturgy. Oh, that's amazing. The... Uh, particularly the canons, the canons where you, we chant these long, sometimes very long, um, you know, aspects of, of, of theology where we're chanting these different things. It's because we're experiencing the truths of it, not just simply, you know, learning them in a textbook. Mm. Now, ironically, sometimes I think in order to understand the canons, you do have to have a little bit of textbook knowledge, but you yeah. have to experience that. Yeah, sure. And I think that's where, you know, the idea of the Jesus prayer also can really, really play out in, in, in important ways. You know, that experience of breathing in Lord Jesus Christ, um, breathing out Son of God, breathing in, have mercy upon me, and breathing out a sinner. That that's, that's an experience that's right. of God. That anyone can do. You don't need a PhD to do that. You don't need a PhD. And sometimes, yeah, exactly. Sometimes the PhD can inhibit you from doing it, that. It really can. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I've said this before, like, my chances of salvation go down with each degree I get. No, it's true. With yeah. all the letters after your name. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a real temptation, right? And, and, you know, it's, it's so silly today to see the vast amounts of academic biblical scholarship done without reverence to, to the living God, yeah. right? Who, who is the principal author of those scriptures. And on the flip side though, I think it's very important because I mean, we are, <laughs> you and I are both devoted yeah. to this concept that there is an importance to science. I mean, there is, completely. we are, we are, we're not fundamentalists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Completely. So how do we square that round peg, Mr. Chris? That's a really good question. I didn't work out an answer to that ahead of time. I think all the things we've said on the Catholic psyche podcast are important because what we're essentially doing is we're taking the wisdom of, of the church and the wisdom of secular psychology. And we're giving that, you know, to our listeners to help them live their lives. And those are genuinely good things. Now, um, if I were to hazard like sort of a little preliminary hypothesis for how to square like the divinization experience with the, um, you know, um, with our interest in science, I might say something like those psychological tools that we're offering can help one get to the point where it's even possible to quiet the mind enough. I mean, it's like, you know, in, in our society now in the West, you know, we're bombarded. I was listening to a really nice podcast on the way over about, um, 
what do they call it? Like the, you know, just the, 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 the blitzkrieg on the senses and how, mm. you know, we are just totally like our appetites are being distorted left and right by like market forces. And so to the point where you're, yeah. listening to podcasts on drives. <laughs> you, you, we hate silence. <laughs> so maybe, you know, we can be using these tools in the service of um, get, getting, just getting to the place that Palamas's audience defaulted to mm. because we're so far from that in this busy culture of ours. Yeah, yeah. A, a therapist, a parishioner actually of mine, put it once, he said, or just, just recently, and it's so, so insightful. Um, he said, you know, therapy used to be for acute cases, mm. but now it's for everyone yeah. because the world is an acute case. Uh, and I mean, it was it. just so insightful. Now, the way in which I, I mean, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but the way in which I've conceptualized it is that there's a very specific reason why I chose Mount Tabor as the name of the counseling practice. And that's yeah. because Mount Tabor is where the transfiguration took place ish mm -hmm. uh, but at least you know that's what the Treparian says the, the the poem says um and so what i think is important about that is to say that it's it is experience of the christ is expressing someone in complete union with the holy spirit that is what the transfigured christ is on that mountain and i think what is so important about that um is that for me what i do in therapy every single day is not me healing the client. Yeah. It's not even the client healing the client, um, as I think the ACA would say. Yeah, or like Carl Rogers. Or Carl Rogers, yeah. But I think it's Christ healing his people. Yep. I think it's a mistake to say that Christ wouldn't use visceral, scientific, and experiential things when you read the gospel and that's what he's doing throughout a lot of it you know oh, I gotta read spitting you on that. yeah spitting on the ground and making mud yeah what it's in um oh, there, there's a great line in one of the wisdom books about like pray but call the doctor yeah yeah there's a there's no i mean well i mean look at look at the the saints especially after the uh you know especially early on i mean saint luke was a physician okay yeah, yeah. i mean and he was active on the journeys with Paul. And part of the appeal of St. Paul, secularly, was St. Luke doing, you know, doing his trade. St. Um, Cosmos and Damien. Yep, yep. Okay, yeah. so this is, yep, Sir, yeah. Sirach, as Sirach, it's, which as is it's better known. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from chapter 38. Give doctors the honor they deserve, for the Lord gave them their work to do. Their skill came from the Most High, and kings rewarded them. The Lord created medicines from the earth, and a sensible person will not hesitate to use them. Um... Moving down, my child, when you get sick, don't ignore it. Pray to the Lord and he will make you well. Um, offer incense and grain offerings. Then call the doctor for the Lord created him and keep him at your side. You need him. Right. So, you know, um, yeah, we and by doctor, I think we can extend that to. By the way, that was from the Good News translation, which is like very modern. I don't, well, the but first it's, one it's not. Gets I mean, the point it, across. it gets the point. But yeah, we, you know, psychologists, counselors, therapists, rely on them not for salvation but for help along the journey yeah yeah and i think that's really important and it's that it's that it's god who saves god who um who heals mm -hmm. and sometimes he does it through the hands of a surgeon sometimes he does it through the words of a therapist sometimes he does it through miraculous how healings. many times have you heard from a client at intake like 
I, I've been praying about this because I knew I needed help or I knew my, my child needed help. And then I stumbled across a pamphlet from Mount Tabor counseling or something. A lot. Yeah. Or I knew I needed help and I was going to go to my priest. Mm -hmm. I think that's the other side. Yeah. And then I, but then I found you. Right. So like, I hear this all the time where my clients say like, I kind of stumbled into this and, you know, I feel like it's God's hand showing me I need, you know, I need whatever your help. Now, you know, I think like some people have maybe a tendency to see always their life in these, in these terms. Um, But oftentimes, yeah, I mean, I think it's true. Like we can notice God's providence and his providence involves people, sometimes trained professionals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I think that's really important. I think, I think it's important to say it is Christ, it is God, it is the Holy Spirit. It's the experience of the Holy Spirit. That is what the spiritual life is all about. That's right. And sometimes there are things that inhibit the spiritual life. That inhibit. That's a really, that's a better way to put it. I like it. So we remove the barriers. Those, we help remove the things that inhibit. Right. The outpouring of the, you know, the uncreated light. The uncreated light. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, what Chris is alluding to there is the idea that the Holy Spirit comes into the heart and the person is, is divinized, is, is, is transfigured. Reaches the, yeah. transfigured. Um, but that there's this image of the window of mm-hmm. the, so the light can come through and that, and sin and psychology, psychological mm-hmm. issues can be darkened. Yeah, that's right. So in many ways we clean those windows. That's right. Yeah, I think that's well put. I think also, um, you know, we need to remember too, with with the with the sciences that aren't practical, it is good to develop knowledge. You know, God gave us this world, and it's good to know things about it, even if they don't immediately yield practical results. Yeah. Um, Just so long as we know that that knowledge can be an idol, and that that knowledge is no substitute for prayer, for direct experience with God. Yeah, because we do experience God. In a physical world. Too. Yeah, his effects are evident anytime we study, any, any scientist is studying the effects of God. I mean, that's why I think the church gets a very, very bad rap for, for things that are actually not even accurate mm-hmm. but, um, in its past. But like the church has been a, a patron of science from, a, Always. Yeah. You know, from the very beginning. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, we can see that. And something that we as Catholic can be very, very proud of yeah, the heritage sure. that we've 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 been given. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go, listeners. You can uh, you can put those books down. Yeah. And maybe go say I don't know, five hundred Jesus prayers. Yeah, uh, fifteen hundred. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time on the yes. Catholic Psyche.